We are excited again to be back here to eat from the table of the word of God. We are continuing our series on faith. And I'm excited just to bring the word to you one more Sunday. If you remember last week, if you heard or if you went back and listened, you remember we talked about how faith culminated in the act of the three Hebrew boys in the book of Daniel. And you remember we discussed even what real faith is. We define what real faith should look like. If you don't remember, we talked about real faith being not the desired hope in an outcome, but the full, complete trust in the sovereign ability in who God is. So we discussed that it is much more than our eager anticipation of what we want God to do, but it is our trust in who God is more than what we trust God can do and will do. This week, I thought it would be unfair of me to merely define what faith is without providing you the biblical tools in how to build your faith in a manner that builds it up and makes it strong. See, it is our obligation that not only that we have faith, but our faith in God is strong. You remember I said it last week, but I want to reemphasize it this week that faith is like a muscle. It is like a muscle. And the more you use it, the more you exercise it, the more you work it, the stronger your faith inevitably will get. But the less you use it, the less you have of it, the more the likelihood is that your faith will atrophy. Now, this isn't something I came up with, but this is what the Bible tells us. That faith grows through testing. Faith grows through trying. I'll never forget, y'all going to laugh. And I didn't tell my wife this story, but now she's going to hear it, so she's going to laugh. I'll never forget when I first started working out. Just so y'all don't know, I'm 180 pounds now. I was 130 pounds before I started working out. So I was skin and bones. And so it was through sheer hard work that I gained 50 pounds. But I'll never forget, when I first started working out, there was one thing I would not touch. It was the bench press. Because I would see all these big guys, and they weren't just on it. They were slinging it. And I was like, I cannot do that. So it was intimidating to me. So I would just walk around that bench press, but I would not get on that bench because I did not trust my ability to handle that weight. But then I started looking at them. I said, well, you know, they are pretty big, and I want to be that big. So maybe I do need to try to get on the bench. So I did. I said, well, I'm, I'm just, I start light. I started with 235, 115 pounds. That's nothing. That's nothing. You know, so I'm on there and I'm working it out and I'm going, I'm pumping, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going until nothing. I was pinned. And I tried to get it up and I could not get that bar off of me. And all I could do was get one end up. And of course, you know what happened. All the weight slid off. I flipped over off of the bench onto the ground. And these trainers ran over there like, are you okay? I was like, I'm good. I'm just embarrassed. Just leave. Like, I don't want to deal with it. Like, I'm good. I'm not hurt. And so the next few times I would go to the gym. I didn't go to the gym for three days after that. But the next few times I would go to the gym, I just looked at that bench. But I was not getting back on Because I was embarrassed. I was intimidated because I realized I couldn't handle the weight that I put on it. But after a few weeks, I started to realize, you know, well... The only way that I will be strong enough to handle that weight and more weight is by applying weight. See, 
the only effective way that my muscles were going to be able to grow was that more weight was applied. That's the same thing with faith. Many of us want strong faith, but we don't want to have to go through the application of the weight. See, the only way that you can have strong faith is that you have a real reason in trusting in God. See, any faith that hasn't been tested, any faith that has not been tried, can it be called faith at all? And that's what we want to talk about today. How do we build strong faith? What is the key to strong faith? Open your Bibles or look on the screen. If you have your Bibles, if you don't, you can look on the screen and turn with us to James chapter 1. Now, who is James? James is the brother of Jesus. But there's an interesting thing about James. James, the whole while Jesus was ministering, was not a believer that his brother was the Messiah. And I can understand that if RJ ever came to me and said, I'm the Messiah, I'm like, boy, you can't be the Messiah. See, he never believed that his brother was the Messiah until his death and resurrection. And after his, after his death and resurrection, the Bible says that he became a pillar in the early church. And he led one of the first house churches that were formed. Now, when he's writing this book of James, he's writing to converted Jews, just as he was, who have been not only persecuted, but they have been dispersed. Now, just so you know, there is a long history of persecution among the Jews. In that time, they had been enslaved to the Egyptians. They had been enslaved to the Babylonians. They had been enslaved to the Assyrians. They had been enslaved to the Babylonians again. At this point, they are enslaved to the Romans. Now, they're more so in a Roman rule, but what was happening is the Romans were taking many of them as slaves. And as they were taking them as slaves, their persecution and their dispersion was increasing. And that's the context behind James chapter 1. James 1 and 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes of in this dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James introduces this book by calling himself a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a dual intended meaning here, and I don't want you to miss it. The first thing that James is communicating is that not only is he just one of the leaders of the church, he isn't just the brother of Christ, but he puts himself in a place of humility by saying that he's a servant. Now, he didn't just arbitrarily use that word, but the word that he used is a bondservant to Christ. That word bondservant means that he considered himself a slave to Christ and a slave to righteousness. So James here is not evoking his authority as a leader in the church, but he is presenting himself as subjected to Christ. He is also identifying, though, with the slavery that many of the Jews that he would have been writing to would have been in. See, what you got to understand is the only reason that they were physical slaves to the Romans was because they were spiritual slaves to Christ and his righteousness. And we know that the Bible actually tells us that we are in Romans 6.18 to consider ourselves slaves to righteousness. 
So it is imperative that the Christian considers themselves slaves to righteousness. We also see that he doesn't call Jesus my brother Jesus, but he calls him the Lord Jesus Christ. So even his very brother is defaulting to his lordship. He didn't put it in cards and say, this is my brother. He then says, and this is what you need to see. He then says, count it all joy when you meet different types of trials. Now, when he says count, this is not what we heard a few weeks ago. And is count up the cost. It's a different word that's used here. When he says count, he literally means consider it joy. It's important you understand what he's saying. He is saying, I'm not telling you that it is joy. I'm not telling you to feel joy. But I'm telling you that when you go through things that you have to consider it as joy, though it may be painful. See, to consider it joy means I have to make a conscious commitment to face my eyes on eternity, not what's happening to me right here on earth. Because only in eternity is where my hope really lies. He says, so when you are facing these multiple trials, you face them as joy, but you also face them with joy. With the anticipation of what those trials mean for you. So we have to see and have a good conscious understanding of what the Bible says about trials. Listen, everyone in this room has just been through stuff. I mean, everyone in this room can probably come up with a long enough list and say, this is what I have been through. Everyone in this room has just been through things. We've all been through trials. But it is important for us to understand why we go through trials. See, if we don't understand why we go through trials, we think God is just arbitrary. God doesn't have a plan. God doesn't have a purpose. But everything God does has intentionality behind it. So we don't go through things for no reason. We got to see why we go through trials. The first thing I want you to see about trials is that trials build our faith in God. If trials did nothing else for us, they build our faith in God. Our faith in God. Just like when I was going to the gym, the more weight that is placed on us, inevitably it builds a greater trust in God through us. See, the word used here in the Greek for trials is not just when we go through downs or lows and lows in life, but it connotes trouble. Something that disrupts the normal pattern of our lives. That's what a trial is. My life was on a perfectly good course. And then this trial to me came out of nowhere. It fell out of nowhere. But to God, the trial was not only ordained, it was orchestrated to do what he was planning to do in you and through you, which is build a greater trust in him. Let's be real. Trials are never happening when we want them to happen. In fact, Look back on your life and tell me what day was the right day for you to go through a trial. 
What moment was the right moment? When were you ever prepared spiritually, physically, emotionally, financially to go through something? You never are. And the reality is, if we didn't have to go through trial, no one in this room would pick a day that was perfect to go through them. Because let me tell you, that's why there are trials, because there's no perfect time to have to go through one. See, you got to understand the difference between temptation and trials. And James tells us this later on. Temptations don't come from God. Temptations come from us. The Bible says when you are tempted, you are drawn away by your own lust. And the Bible tells us later in James that God doesn't tempt you with evil. So any temptation you may be going through and the reciprocal effects of that temptation is brought on by your own lust and your own sin. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about when I can take inventory of my life and see that I have done nothing to put myself in this situation, then there's no other responsibility on it other than God placed this trial in my course of life. That's what we're talking about. Trials are any time our lives are interrupted or go off course. So we are saying that they build our faith, then we got to figure out how they build our faith. The same word that is used for trials when in the verb form literally means proofing. It literally means proofing, testing. It made me think about when you make bread, you have to proof the yeast. You have to make sure it won't fall. You have to proof it to make sure that it is doing exactly what it should be. Trials in our lives are a testing process. Now, you may say, why does God in his infinite wisdom test us what is there about us that God doesn't already know that's a wonderful question he should know just how much faith we have because doesn't the Bible say that he's the one who grants us a measure of faith it absolutely does so if the faith if the testing is not to prove our faith to God then the corollary must be that the testing is to prove our faith or the lack thereof to ourselves. See, just like me, I thought I could handle that bar. I thought I could handle the weight because I had grown a dependence on myself that I shouldn't have. Oftentimes, we think that we are better than we are, bigger than we are, further along in our walk than we are, until the trial comes and reminds us, baby, it's not you, it's God. That's what the trial does. We got to take some time on here, all right? There are often times, especially when Christians are gaining in wisdom and gaining in grace, that we start to depend less and less and less on God in our lives. And the less we depend on God, inevitably, the more we depend on ourselves. Very often, this is a gradual process for us as we do not realize that we have slowly become independent of God and dependent on ourselves. Now, you may question, well, why does God need me dependent on him? Doesn't God see that I'm, a, I'm at peace when everything in my life is going well? Is God egotistical? Is God a narcissist? Why does God need me dependent on him? Well, one, no, God's not egotistical. 
God is not a narcissist. What God wants you to see is that when you are totally dependent on him, it removes all the stress and strain of independence in your life. It's just like when you're a child and the greatest thing you want is independence, but you find out there's a lot of beauty and there's a lot of rest in dependence. It's the same way. See, let's be honest. Most of us in some kind of way, in some kind of form or fashion, have made something or someone an idol in our lives. Let's just be realistic. Whether it's our job or the money we get from that job, or our spouse, or our education, or our children. Many of us have raised those things to be up as idols in our lives. And when you raise anything up to be an idol in your life, whether you make it marriage or you make it singleness, what you will learn is that it never meets the expectation you have of it because you made it an idol, which is a false image of God. What you'll learn about the things you idolize is that you are always at the mercy of how well those things are going. And so you'll ride the roller coaster of how much money I have, how great my job is going, how great my relationship with my spouse is, how great the children are behaving. But the minute they bring an F home on the report card, your mood follows where they are leading. Because we've made an idol out of things that we can't make an idol out of. See, the difference with God and the reason God wants us to be dependent on him is because we think we're at peace when those things are going well. But we never take into consideration what happens when those things go well, don't go well. Not if. When those things do not go well. Well, how do you know, Brandon, they're not going to go well? Because there is one constant consistent being that's ever existed in the world and that is God himself. God is the only one who is unchanging. He's the only one that is unwavering. And so that means I'm at the mercy of how well these things are doing, how well these things are going, and I will continually ride the roller coaster of how well these things are going in my life. You say, well, doesn't God want me at peace? I'm at peace when these things are going well, but What God really wants you to see is there is no true peace without him. And save from God, what you think is peace really is misery. How many times have we made an idol out of something in our lives and when we got it, we just realized it really wasn't what we expected it would be? Because as opposed to raising up what God would be in our lives, we raised up what that thing would be in our lives. And it can only be disappointing. See, as long as those things are subject to change, we will always ride the wave of emotion that life brings. And we will never have true faith in God. I like the way 1 Peter says it. 1 Peter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, we see that we are to rejoice in our trials. But Peter here is emphasizing that it is temporary by saying for a little while. Now, you may think that means, oh, okay, that means 
That means I'm going to have some money at some point. Well, not necessarily. What Peter is actually conveying, he says, listen, even if you have a hundred thousand years of bad luck here on earth, it is in no way, shape or form compared to what eternity is, which is everlasting, never ceasing and never ending. Which means no matter how much you go through, no matter how long you go through it, it can only be temporary because this earth is temporary. That means that why would I invest more in my suffering down here when there is an eternal weight of glory that the Bible says does not compare to the suffering I'm going through right now? It's a weight of glory. That literally, I can't even form the words to compare to what I'm going through now. See, the reality is, none of us will have 100,000 years. Most of us will have 80, 90, maybe 100. That is still not enough time to determine anything false about your eternity. Because just in case you don't understand this, eternity goes on forever. And that's what he wants you to see. He says, so our hope is that we have eternal life to look forward to. That is why we hope. That is why we face trials with joy. And that is why we rejoice. Because not only do we know that there is a greater promise for us, but it also means that when we face trials, we face them as partakers in the suffering of Christ. Not independently of ourselves. Then he says, so that... Or for this reason, the genuineness of our faith can be tested. It reminds me of when I worked at Zales Jewelers. I've had a bunch of jobs. It reminds me when I worked at Zales Jewelers. There were always these people who would come in with this jewelry that they had got from a pawn shop or an estate sale or one of those little kiosks. You know, those little kiosks in the mall. And they would always come in there and they would have some trepidation about whether or not their jewelry was real. And I would always tell them, well, you know, we can test it. We can just have it sent off for an appraisal. They would always respond something like, how much does that cost? And I would say, you know what? Just to help you out, I'll do it for free. And they would always kind of look back at their ring. They would look back at me. And they'd always say, no, I think I'm okay. Thank you. Now, why did they do that? Because they knew that the same thing that could prove the genuineness of their jewelry was the same thing that would disprove it. And so as opposed to having it tested, they would rather take the risk of walking around with something faulty than knowing for a fact that it was real. How many of of us is that the same case that when trials come, when any obstacle comes, as opposed to facing it with joy, as joy, we step away from it because we don't want to know the real truth about our faith. And that's the fact is that it's non-existent. See, if you really wanted to have strong faith and if you really want to have genuine faith, you would do anything to prove to God and yourself. See, God is real. But when there's any ever a shred of doubt, you won't test it. Because you don't want to find out your faith is faulty. So they always avoid the testing just like we do. And the sad reality is there is no believer who doesn't face trials with joy. 
In order to be a believer, a firm believer, you have to face trials with the outcome being that whether or not I agree with what's happening, it is bringing me closer to God. It's a purpose. So we avoid anything that will prove our faith or disprove it very often. Point number two, trials purify us. Trials purify us. They purify us. More precious than gold, he says, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When gold is placed in the furnace, and Peter understood this process, we're going to find out that Peter wasn't the only one who understood this process. But when gold is placed in the furnace, it liquefies. Borax and soda is then added to the process because when it liquefies, the purpose is that the fire is going to separate the improper metals from the precious metals. And so that what comes out of the furnace is pure gold. See, it's the same reason that we go through what we go through. Because not only is faith building a greater trust in God in us, but it is purifying the areas in our lives that need to be purified. See, many of us, if we be real, we have areas of mistrust. We have areas of anger. We have areas of depression, callousness. Trials don't come to exacerbate those issues. They come to shave off the rough edges in your life so that you can look less like yourself and inevitably look more like God. Remember when Satan comes to God and he says, I've been going all around the earth. All right. And I've been seeking this dude, this guy, this one person that I can find to devour and to destroy. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? Now the word he used in Hebrew considered is, have you set your heart on Job? See, the words of God said that Job was blameless and upright. It always annoys me when people say, I'm just going through my Job experience. Well, are you blameless and upright? Because you may be going through your you experience. We have to see that it's not what I thought Job was about. And let me tell you where we get Job wrong. I thought that God was merely testing Job to prove to Satan that he wouldn't curse him. But that may have been a byproduct of what God was doing. But the real thing that God was doing was even for who God called a blameless and upright man, God was still purifying the areas of mistrust, even in Job. He said, well, how do you know? Well, let me show you. Job 23. At this point, Job is very frustrated, very disingenuous, disillusioned, disenchanted, all the disses. He can't understand what's going on. He says, today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. 
I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know that he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No. He would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him. And I, could, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I can't even behold him. He turns to the right hand. I don't see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I will come out as gold. Right. Job is broken here. Job is a broken man. And Job has lost far more than anybody in here has ever lost. Job is in such dire straits that he says, not only can I not see God, but have you ever been in a position where you can't even perceive that God is working? Have things ever been so bad that you couldn't even wrap your mind around the fact that God even still existed? He says, I don't see him on the left and I don't see him on the right. But then he says something really important. But I can't see where I'm going, but I know he can. And when he has tried me, when he has proven me, when he has tested me, when God has refined me, I shall come out better than what I was when I went in. That's the purpose of a test. That's the purpose of trials. Job is intimating the same thing that Peter did, that fire and trials are synonymous to burn off and refine the areas in our lives that we don't look as much like God as we should. And so if you are in this room and you are running from refinement, what you're really running from is sanctification. See, sanctification is the process where God slices off all the things that make you who you are so that he can conform you into who he is. That's how we go. Number three, last point. Trials produce endurance. They produce endurance. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I remember growing up as a child. And I'm going to help y'all out today because y'all probably feel this way too and won't admit it. I didn't know what steadfastness meant. I didn't even, I was like, what, what does that mean, steadfast? I don't know what that word means. And that's not the greatest translation for us. Steadfast is better, is better translated as endurance. So it's endurance. What he's saying here is faith, testing of our faith produces in us endurance. But how does it produce endurance? Well, when we go through testing of our faith, when God delivers us from the trial. It produces an unwavering relationship with him. See, 
without the testing, without the trial, we don't have a full breadth of knowledge and understanding of who God really is. Let me say it better this way. If I had never been sick and God healed me, I would never have the testimony that God is a healer. If I had never been broke and God supplied my need, provided my need, I would never have the testimony that God is a sustainer. See, the reality is, is that as long as I don't go through anything, I'm not giving God the opportunity to be God in my life. It reminds me of those movies that we see when there are always these two people who don't really know each other, don't really get along, and then they have to face some dangerous situation together. And they always come out trusting one another better because they had to rely on each other and depend on each other to get through the situation in the first place. See, that's the same thing that trials do with us and God. When we go through it and we see the faithfulness of God, it produces a greater faithfulness in us for him. But many of us, because we are avoiding and escaping obstacles and trials as much as we can, do not have great faith in God. We have great faith in us. We have great trust in us. We have great belief in us, but little belief in God. God is faithful, God is just, he is my deliverer, he is my salvation, and he is my protection. That's my testimony because he's had to be all those things in my life. Now, I can tell you, in the moment that I had to realize that he was faithful, I didn't want to have to go through what I went through to figure that out. In the moment that I had to realize that God is perfectly just and balanced, I didn't want to have to go through what I had to go through to figure that out. When I had to realize that God was my deliverer, that means I needed to be rescued from something. When I had to understand that he was my salvation, that means I was broken and lost. And when I had to realize that God is my protection, that means I've been in some really bad situations that only God could have been the one who protected me in those situations. Remember Abraham. Abraham became the father of faith, and that's how we all know him. He's the father of faith. But he's only the father of faith because of the testing. Now... I wanted to tell you that, listen, Abraham failed every test he, he had before he came to the, the mountain to kill Isaac. But maybe that's not the case. I felt like, yeah, he failed all those tests. Twice, when forced to go into two different kingdoms because of the famine, he lied and said that Sarah was his sister instead of his wife, which is, you know, kind of a half-truth because she was his half-sister, but, you know, half-truth is a whole lot. And so he even lied about that aspect of who she was in their relationship. Not only did he lie about that, when God told him that he was going to provide him a son, and when it just didn't happen the way he thought it was going to happen, he went to make his own way. See, seemingly to me, he failed those tests. Because hindsight is always 20-20. But if it hadn't been for those tests that he occurred... If God never tested him in those ways, he never would have seen that, wait a minute, my faithfulness is only dependent on the faithfulness of God. And so in the moment when he's there and he's ready to kill his son because God has told him to, what does he learn? He learns, I messed up in those other areas of my life and those tests were showing me that I had a greater dependence on who I was. 
And if it wasn't for those tests, I wouldn't have the faith that when God is telling me to do something that sounds irrational, that sounds illogical, God knows better than I do on my best day. I only learned that because I didn't avoid even the mistakes I made in the trials. I learned who God was through those trials. That is the fact in our own lives. The more we go through things, the more it deepens our love for God. That's why when the Bible says, I have been crucified in Christ, nevertheless I live, but it's Christ who lives in me. The best way I can say that is, the more trials we go through, the deeper the nails get. The closer we become to God, the more crucified we are, and the less it's us who lives, and it's God and Christ that lives through us and in us. That is why we go through what we go through. And when we go through these things, it produces such a sanctification in us that when we will face everything else that we will face, not if we face, when we face the other things that we go through, whether it's loss, whether it's death, whether it's hurt, whatever it may be, people will look at us and not marvel at our faithfulness, but marvel at God's faithfulness. So that the tested, proving genuineness of our faith may not just be a testimony for us, but it may be a testimony for the other people who are surrounding us, who want to have an idea about who God is that we're always talking about. So you face your trials having a hope that makes people baffled when they see it. That's why the Bible says a peace that surpasses, that goes beyond reason and understanding. So much to the point that someone will ask you, how could you remain so steadfast in what you have gone through? And the only thing that you can reply is, is not because I'm faithful. God is faithful. God is in control. God is sovereign. And I have a hope that no matter how bad it gets down here, it's going to be great up there. And no matter how down I may feel, one day, whether it's by the uptaker or the undertaker, I am leaving out of here to my blessed hope, which is to reside with the Jesus I told everybody else about. That is why we go through what we go through. That is how we build strong faith, is that we have a reason to not just lean on God, but Pastor Norfolk says, lay on God. And we depend on him. And we trust in him. That he is as everlasting as he says he is. So, how do I have strong faith? Have strong faith by knowing that God is removing the impurities out of my life. God is placing these burdens on me so that I can look more like him. And just in case you know this, the Bible doesn't actually ever say he won't put more on you than you can bear. In fact, they're taking that misquote out of 1 Corinthians 10, 13, when it says, with temptation, God won't allow you to be tempted more than you are able to handle. But just in case you don't understand it, 
God absolutely puts more on you than you can bear. Why? So that he can bear your burdens. Listen, let's just be realistic. I'll be realistic. When my grandmother passed away a few weeks ago, that was more than I could bear. I don't have the strength to bear that. Even to this day, I don't have the strength to bear it. It is a weight that if I try to handle it, I can't handle it. And because I can't handle it, I place it on the shoulders of him who can. And I let him have it. And I understand that as bad as it may feel, as painful as it may be, it's producing a greater testimony in my life that's not going to tell anybody about how great Brandon was, but it's going to tell a testimony that he decreased in every way he possibly could, that you decreased in every way you possibly could so that the glory of God could be seen most evident. I made mention of it last week. But I want to say it again. If God sent his only son to a cross because it gave him a greater testimony of who God was because it gave him a greater glory of who God was that the Bible says it was the will of him to bruise his own son what could God possibly be doing to us and through us to produce in us a greater testimony of who he is and I'm going to leave you with this don't miss the forest for the trees. What am I saying? Don't get lost in the test. Because a test is just a test. It doesn't compare to what shall be revealed in us through Jesus Christ. And knowing that, we endure. Let's pray.